parents. And he decided that he would try and experiment on his parents, which I actually think sounds like a kind of a fun idea, try and experiment on your parents. His experiment was that he was slowly going to replace the family photos that were hung around the house, on the walls, on the shelves, wherever, with another family. And he would replace them slowly, day by day, and see how long it took for his parents to notice. So he said, two days in, his dad noticed. And when his dad called him out on it, so he confessed, yes, I did that, I changed those photos, but he said, don't tell mom, because I want to see how long it takes her. So it took her five days to notice, and on day five, she looked at one of the pictures and thought, who is that? That's not my family. That's somebody totally different. I, so I read that story. I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. That may actually be a fun experiment to try at some point. But to me, that little story points to a deeper reality. One of those deeper realities is we often go through life and we're just unaware of what's going on around us. I don't know how much you pay attention to everything that's going around you and life and our community and school or other people or your family, but most of the time we're kind of self-absorbed in our own little worlds and we're not paying attention to what's going on around us, and that's natural. We're living the lives that we're living, so that's what we're focused on, but even deeper than that, I think most of us, we don't really pay attention and we're not really aware of what's going on inside of us. There are so many people that go through life through either bouts of anxiety or long-term anxiety. It's going on inside of us. We're just not aware of it. And maybe anxiety is not your thing, but you could substitute. Uh, you got some anger issues. Maybe you're very defensive. Maybe you're insecure. You know, maybe you have low self-esteem or, or self-confidence, and the list could go on and on. We, have, we all have things that we deal with inside of us, and, and really most of us just aren't real aware of those things. So today we're going to look through Psalm 42. We're going to go through all 11 verses. We're going to go verse by verse, expository style, my favorite way to study the Bible. And I want to see what maybe we can learn from the psalmist here about how to deal with what's going on inside of us. And then as we go verse by verse, maybe we'll just see what God may have to say to us. So let's start, verse 1 and 2. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? So I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, this, two weeks ago, this was the main focus of the sermon. So we talked about the thirsty soul. Because I've already preached on it, I'm not going to rehash much of it. We just talked about how there's different ways that we can thirst for God. We thirst for God sometimes from a dry soul or even an empty soul. We wind up running on empty. And so we are thirsting for God out of that kind of desperation. But it's possible to thirst for God from a satisfied soul. And God has satisfied our souls and we just keep drinking from that eternal source of life, the river of life, the living water that Jesus talks about. And I'm not going to get into any more on, on these two verses. Uh, if you're real interested, you go back and listen to those sermons if you'd like. They're on YouTube or our podcast. I, if you feel inclined to do that, go for it. But in summary, verse 1 and 2, basically the psalmist is saying that he is desperate for God just like you would be if you were extremely thirsty. He thirsts for God. All right? In verse 3, we'll move on. 
He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, Where is your God? One of the things I appreciate about Psalm 42 and the writer is that he makes himself vulnerable. And he's just honest. He lets us in to his personal world and he says, first of all, my tears have been my food day and night. If he is crying this much, if he is shedding this many tears, that means he is in the depths of emotional pain and he's not afraid to admit it. Part of the reason why he feels this way and why he's shedding this many tears is because of the way people are treating him. Apparently people are mocking him. People are taunting him, saying, where is your God? So I've spent the last several months reading through Psalm 42 multiple times. I have listened to what other preachers have to say about Psalm 42. I've read commentaries and I've meditated on it, spent time on Psalm 42. And the more I'm looking at anxiety and how he's dealing with the disquieted soul and looking at this text, my mind starts to wonder, my curiosity is piqued. And one of the things I'm thinking is I wonder how bad it really is for the writer. Is it really as bad as he's claiming here? Does he walk out of the door of his house and everywhere he goes, every day, everybody is saying to him, where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? Is it really that bad? Or could it be that there are a few people who question him on this sometimes? Now, I'm not trying to minimize what he's experiencing, But I'm just wondering, my curiosity gets to me, and I wonder if what the psalmist is doing is what we normally do. We have a tendency to think if somebody has verbally abused us, if somebody has said something harmful or hurtful to us, it can be so painful that we think everybody's out to get us. You ever do that? Like you start looking at life like, well, they're gossiping about me, or this person, I got wind that they had said this about me. That must mean that everybody thinks that. And sometimes we can become a little paranoid. And I'm just wondering, I'm not saying this is what's happening, but I wonder here in verse 3 if that's what he's doing. There are some people out there that have taunted him, that have given him a hard time, that are saying, where is your God? So in his mental health and his emotional health, he's thinking, everybody's out to get me. So he's shedding tears all day long. And, And the truth is, if you're in the middle of a bout of or or struggle with anxiety or depression, or any kind of emotional pain, we have a tendency to view everything through these dark-tinted lens. That if this is bad, if this person doesn't like me, everybody doesn't like me. And we, have, we do, as human nature, we have a tendency to exaggerate the problem. I'm just curious if that's what's happening in verse 3. Let's move on now to verse 4. He said, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts of songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. What's he talking about here? Well, if you go up, if you have your Bible open, it'll show at the top before, uh, right above verse 1, it says this was written by the sons of Korah. Who are they? Well, we read about the sons of Korah in 1 Chronicles, and they had many roles in the temple worship in Jerusalem. And one of their roles, one of their main roles, was to lead the temple liturgy. They led the people in worship. And so the writer here, one of the sons of Korah, is saying, I remember. Kind of like he's saying, I remember the good old days when I used to be able to lead people in worship. We're going to find out in verse 6, he's no longer in Jerusalem. 
People are mocking and taunting him. Apparently, he's not able to travel back to Jerusalem. So he's not able to participate in the one main thing that he feels called to do. He's no longer able to lead God's people to the house of God and lead them in worship. So his purpose and his usefulness have been challenged. Think about your own life, your own job, whatever life stage you're in. If your purpose in life and your usefulness has been challenged, well, that can make you susceptible to anxiety and depression. If you're going through some kind of transition, or maybe just your life stage with your family, all of a sudden you become empty nesters. I know seniors are graduating around now. It's a big change in who you were and now who are you now. And there's big changes going on. And your usefulness and your purpose has been challenged a little bit. It makes you a little more susceptible. And what verse 4 really reminds me of is what we experienced two years ago when we first started battling with COVID. Spring of 2020, this is a picture that was taken one day when we were in this auditorium. It was super awkward. There was like eight people in here. We had a camera, we filmed, we live streamed, and we weren't able to come here in this building for three months. And pretty much everything in town was shut down. It was a difficult time. You remember how anxious those times were? If not, ask me. And if I fill up to being honest with you, I will share with you some of the things that people told me. I promise you, people were anxious during that time. It was a very difficult time, and it was just two years ago. We were still shut down at this point. And when we reopened in June of 2020, for those who came back, several people said to me, I never realized how much I missed this. How much I missed being together in person, fellowshipping and worshiping with other believers. And to me, that's what, we, we've been through something similar. What he's talking about in verse 4 is very similar to our COVID experience. He's saying, I remember when I used to be able to lead people to the house of God, but now I'm not there anymore. So verse 3, people are taunting and mocking him and saying, where's your God? Verse 4, he's not able to lead worship anymore, which leads me to verse 5, which is the main question that he asks. We looked at back on May 1st. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Open God, for I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. Now, this was our main focus. This verse, in verse 11, uh, on May 1st, three weeks ago. So again, I'm not going to go back over everything, but I will remind you, I'm reading from a New Revised Standard Version, and maybe your translation uses different English words, but the NRSV translates it, a disquieted soul. He's asking himself, why are you disquieted? That's not a word we use real often in our English language, but I like this word because I think it captures a deeper problem. I told you from that sermon on that when I talk about the disquieted soul, I'm using that as a metaphor for anxiety. I'll use the disquieted soul interchangeably or synonymously with anxiety, and you could also maybe... Think about the disquieted soul and depression as being very similar. And when it comes to battling with these inward problems that we may have, frustrations, whatever you want to call it, pain, there's a few things we learn from the writer here that we could probably put into practice. And one of those things is that he is self-aware. He's naming the problem. He's saying, something's wrong within me. 
He's looking within his soul. He's asking himself this question. Why are you feeling this way? He knows there's a problem within him and he knows something is not right. He names it. And one helpful step in dealing with anxiety and even depression is to just name it. As one author said, if you can name it, you can tame it. And the more specific you can get, the better. So I'll give you an example from my own life. There, there's a lot of examples that I could use, but I'll go back. Two months ago, it was late March 2022, whatever this year is right now. So just two months ago, uh, everybody had been on spring break. Most people were returning. It was a Saturday night. Jessica made breakfast for dinner. We had just bought a new wiffle ball bat and wiffle ball. And so I took the kids outside in the front yard. We played wiffle ball for about an hour. It was fun. And then we came back inside, and these were the times two months ago when it actually got dark at a decent hour, and so you could put your kids to bed early now. The sun is like out 24-7, so the kids are awake all the time. But back then, we could get them ready for bed around 8, and we went back in the living room. We were settling down, and I guess I got quiet and lost in my own thoughts. I didn't even realize it. And so they asked me, Dad, what's wrong? Why are you being so quiet? And normally I would probably say something like, oh, nothing's wrong, I'm fine, sorry, y'all go get ready for bed. But for whatever reason in that moment, I just decided to be honest with them. They said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I feel really anxious right now. Well, the next question was, what does that mean? What is anxious? And so I explained to them what that means, and they said, why do you feel that way? I said, you know, I'm not real sure, right? Saturday night, I need to start reviewing my sermon I always get a little anxious before I preach. It's a, an important task, and I take it very serious. Maybe that's why I feel that way. I said, well, it could be because it's been really busy this year. I've been on committees, and there's a lot of extra meetings, and there's a lot of extra funerals that have taken place, and, and there's just so many extra little things going on, and all of a sudden it's just flooded over me. I'm not sure if it's the first thing, the second thing, or a combination of both. But there was something freeing that night about just saying, I feel anxious. The reason I'm being quiet over here is because I'm battling some form of anxiety. I don't fully understand it, but being honest about it and confessing it, something happened. Naming it started to de-escalate the power that it normally has over you. And that's something the psalmist does here in verse 42 when he's saying, my soul is disquieted within me. Something's off. We could all start by paying attention to what's going on inside of us and noticing our own triggers. Kind of like that family that didn't notice that their pictures were changing. Do you notice what's going on inside of you? You know the areas where maybe you're a little extra sensitive, certain things that could happen in life that make you a little extra sad, or things that make you mad, or things that make you anxious. The more self-knowledge you have in this area the better, and you become self-aware, and then you can name it, and then it's, the anxiety doesn't have quite as much power over you. So that's what he does well here. We'll move on to verse 6. He says, my soul is cast down within me. He names it again. He names it. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. This is where we find out that he is somewhere north. He's not in Jerusalem. We don't know why he's being prevented from going back to Jerusalem to lead worship in the temple, but this is where he is. So Again, he's put in the position where he's remembering. I remember you, God. 
My soul is cast down, but I remember you. And then in verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your... This version says cataracts. On the screen it says torrents. Some translations say at the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. Let me point out a few things about this verse. First of all, that top line where it says deep calls to deep. In my opinion, that sounds like a cool thing to say. Like if you're ever writing poetry and you write a line like that, deep calls to deep, somebody's out there is going to think that sounds pretty cool. And I know a lot of preachers and Christian authors who like this verse. Psalm 42, verse 7, that first line, deep calls to deep. I've seen it, I've heard it in sermons, I've seen it quoted in books, and most of the time people talk about this from a positive viewpoint. As if to say, but the deeper that you want to go with God, the deeper you want to go spiritually, the deeper God will allow you to go. Deep calls to deep. However, he's talking about the water, which really he's talking about the sea. And for the Israelites, the Hebrew people, the sea was always a threatening place, a place of chaos. Even there's, there's some truth to the deep calls to deep, and you can go deeper if you want to go deeper spiritually. Like, that's true but I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. I think this verse is, is not a positive thing. He's saying he's in the depths of despair, and now, you know, verse 1 and 2, he's saying, I thirst for God. Now in verse 7, he's saying, I'm drowning by God. That's what he feels like. Last year, we took our kids to the beach, and we did the typical thing that you do with families when you have kids. You play in the sand, you go swimming, you play in the waves, all that kind of stuff. But I noticed, and you might notice in this picture, that about 20 or 30 yards out, there was a sandbar. And I would watch, as the days went on, that people would swim out to that sandbar, and then all of a sudden you could stand up and the water was only about as deep as your ankles. So one day I thought, if they can do it, I can do it. I'm going to swim out there. So I did. And right before you get to that sandbar, it gets a little bit deep, but it wasn't too bad. I made it to the sandbar. It was fun. I'm turning around, waving to my family on the beach over there. And when I get back, guess what? My kids want to go. Okay, well, if I got to do it, then they should be able to do it. So I said, okay, hold on to me, and I'll walk you out to that sandbar. And so I'm walking them out there, and everything's fine. And then right before we get to it, all of a sudden the water is a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I, st I had a moment where I started to panic. And it probably only lasted a few seconds, but for me it felt like it lasted minutes. I couldn't touch the bottom, and the waves were coming over the top part of our heads, and all three of us are gasping for breath, and I'm just praying in that moment that we will make it to that sandbar so that we can breathe, so the water won't completely cover us up. It was a scary moment, and I will confess, not one of my best parenting moments. Uh, that was one of those things when you finally get there and you catch your breath, you're like, man, I, what am I doing being a parent? Like, I don't make the best decisions sometimes, but hey, we're here, we made it, they had a good time. But what he's saying in verse 7 is that's what it feels like. Maybe you like to just say you're stressed out, okay, if that's what you want to call it. If you struggle with anxiety or depression, this emotional pain that, that all of us deal with from time to time, it feels like that. The waves sweeping over you. It's hard to even keep your head above water. It's not a good thing. And what the writer is saying is that's exactly where he's at. 
Well, then all of a sudden in verse 8, he just switches gears and it's like, boom. Uh, he goes from a really depressing psalm to something really positive and he says, By day the Lord commands a steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I don't know where all his negativity and his depression went, but all of a sudden he seems happy. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love. This, we're in book two of Psalms, if you were doing a whole study of Psalms. And he uses the name Yahweh, that we translate it as Lord in English. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love. This is the only place in book two of Psalms where the name Yahweh is used. And he says, at night his song is with me a prayer to the God, Elohim, of my life. The preferred name in book two of Psalms is always Elohim. But here, for some reason, the only place in book two of Psalms where it says Yahweh. Now, I don't know why he goes from darkness to light all of a sudden and switches gears. But truthfully, he could have ended the psalm right here and it would have been on a positive note about God's steadfast love. But really quickly, he switches gears back to the sadness and the depression in verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? He's questioning God. He's saying, why are you letting this happen? Why are people treating me this way? Why do I feel the way I do? Maybe really what he's thinking is, what is actually happening inside of me? God, why are you letting this happen? Maybe you've been there before. Or you've been in the depths of your own pain and problems or relational problems, and that sounds like your prayer. Why? Why is this happening? In verse 10, he says, As with a deadly wound in my body. Not that his body is physically wounded, it's like a deadly wound in his body. So now he's not only the disquieted soul, he's the wounded soul. He says, My adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, Where is your God? This is the second time. He's mentioned, where is your God? And kind of like with verse 3, I would ask the question, is it really as bad as he thinks it is? Or could it be that in his mind he's exaggerated the problem, and yes, some people are taunting and mocking him, but to him he thinks everybody is. Well, that's just my own speculation, but regardless, the second thing we learn about dealing with anxiety from this writer here is that he's not just self-aware, and naming what's going on inside of him, he's other aware. He is aware that other people are causing anxiousness within him. Does that ever sound like your story? If you're struggling, or you're dealing with anxiety, or maybe you just feel sad, some of it doesn't come from you. It comes from other people. And to be aware of that is a good thing. It doesn't mean that we blame. I'm not suggesting being other aware, aware of how others cause anxiety in you means that you should start blaming people. That's what Adam and Eve did with the original sin and the garden. You know, we don't want to do that. We don't want to start blaming others. Because I've studied anxiety, I've studied family systems theory and how we're all interconnected and we affect each other. It's true within a church, it's true within a family, it's true within your work environment or school is that you don't just kind of pass each other by like two ships passing in the sea and that's it. They don't affect each other. No, there's a ripple effect. There's waves. What one person says to you may affect the rest of your day, the rest of your life. We affect each other. Anxiety is contagious. Did you know that? 
I mentioned earlier COVID. You want to know how anxiety is contagious? Ask me and I'll share some stories. Everybody was anxious and it started to spread. So other people affect our own anxiety. And one of the things that we can be aware of is just our own relational triggers. That's what the psalmist is doing here. Is he's saying, these people that are taunting me and mocking me, they're causing part of the disquieted soul within me. So again, know your triggers. Where are you extra sensitive? Where are you insecure? I know I have those places within me. Maybe somebody makes a joke about something and I take it a little too serious because I'm insecure in that area. Or we could go on and on about different relational triggers. But be self-aware, self-knowledge. Be other aware of how other people can affect your anxiety like the psalmist does here. And then in verse 11, the last verse, again he asks the same question that he does in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. It's like he gives himself a little pep talk. He goes back to confessing, man, something's not right. He's naming it, but I'm going to trust in God. My help is in God. My hope is in God. So the third thing that he does that I think we can learn from is that he is also God-aware. He's self-aware. He's aware of how others are affecting him. But he's also aware of how at the root of his problem, he needs to turn to God. He needs to be aware of God's presence. If you're battling anxiety, you're struggling with a disquieted soul, that normally distracts you. It takes your awareness away from God. And our focus when you're dealing with anxiety is to get relief. But the goal of managing anxiety or the disquieted soul is not simply for just getting relief. The goal is so that we can be more aware and deeply connected with God. So the last thing I'll say is this reminds me of Jacob from the book of Genesis. I don't think Jacob or the writer of Genesis ever used the word anxiety to my knowledge. But I would say that Jacob was a person that battled high anxiety because of all the conflict in his life. He had conflict with his father. He had conflict with his brother. He had conflict with his father-in-law. He was always on the run. He was telling lies. He created a web of problems within his life. And then one night, Genesis 28, he, lay, he lays down to go to sleep and he has this dream. You remember his dream? There's a ladder and the angels are ascending and descending from heaven. In Genesis 28 and verse 16, when Jacob wakes up, you remember what he says? But surely the Lord was in this place but I was not aware of it. It's not that, oh, finally God showed up. For Jacob, he realizes, no, God has been with me all along, but I just haven't been aware of it. So one of the things the psalmist does here is even in the middle of all of his pain and his frustration and his anxiety and his depression is he's still aware that God is with him and that he needs to turn to God for a source of help. And I mentioned three weeks ago, and I'll mention it again, that one of the advantages we have as Christians is that we can view these Psalms or anything from the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though we might identify with some of this emotional pain, and that's okay because that's human tendency, and we're here as a church family to help each other, and one of the, a lot of authors will say the root of our anxiety is a fear of death. A fear of 
What happens after we die? What is this life all about? And through the cross, and through the burial, and through the resurrection, Jesus has defeated death. And so, ultimately, Jesus defeats the thing that causes the most anxiety in our lives. So we read this Psalm 42, we can... We can learn from it, we can identify with it, but we can also read it through the lens of Jesus, knowing there is hope because of Christ. So this morning we offer an invitation to you. If, if you are aware of your own disquieted soul, if we can help you become more God-aware, if we can pray for you in any way, uh, we would invite you to come forward and talk with myself or one of our shepherds that are around the room. If we can help you in any way, we're here for you. Let's stand and continue to sing. of quiet rest near to the heart of God a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God oh Jesus blessed redeemer sent from the heart of God hold us to wait me